0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 15 of Alice's Adventures. Tonight, we advance past, well, we'll eventually get past the square, the chess square in which Tweedledum and Tweedledee live. Um, First, we're going to meet the White Queen, of course, and then we'll cross over and things will get weird uh, in the next square. What is it? The fifth square? Is it the fifth square? I think it's the fifth square. Might be the fourth square. I can't remember what number square it is. Um, which number were Tweedledum and Tweedledee in? She starts in two... No, it's a, I think it is five. I think it is five, right? She goes through... Because she, she starts in two because she's a pawn. And then she's on the train, right? The uh, Looking Glass Insects one is the, the one that she goes through quickly um, in square three. And then... Tweedledum and Tweedledee or square four, right? And then I believe so. I believe so. Okay. Anyway, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed tonight to a new square on the board. Glad to have you guys back with me today. Um, just a reminder that this week is the final week of our fall fundraising campaign. So many thanks to everybody who has so generously donated to Signum University uh, over the uh, over the course of the year. You know, in previous years, there's so many folks who have been faithful donors to Signum University for many years now. Uh, Enormously grateful uh, to everybody. We have had a wonderful fundraising campaign so far. Um, That's going to be culminating. The final event of our fundraising campaign is this Saturday. This Saturday um, is going to be our campaign-ending webathon, our finale. And what we're going to be doing there, as always, I'm going to be starting with my state of the university address. So if you would like like to know more about what's going on at Signum and where are we headed and and what's happening. There's some really exciting things uh, coming up here at Signum University that we're working on. Um, So I'm going to be explaining those things, talking about the big picture. What is the plan for Signum University as we're moving forward? And then we're going to get some updates and some special features uh, from several of our programs, including uh, a whole bunch of uh, space capsules, that is, little mini versions of uh, of our little kind of sneak peeks into uh, several of our space modules moving forward. So um, anyway, that is what we're doing, uh, and that's, so that's going to be on Saturday, and that's going to be starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, so uh I hope that you guys will be able to join me for that. Recordings will be up on YouTube afterwards and will be available on Twitch as well, but uh, as I say, I hope that you will uh, uh that you'll be able to join us for that. There's going to be a lot of fun things. There's going to be games, there's going to be giveaways. It's going to be great fun. Um now uh I also want to celebrate by doing a giveaway right here tonight with among you folks who are faithfully with us here in the Twitch chat. So here's what we're gonna do. This week, we're gonna do something that I haven't done before here uh, in, uh, uh, in Twitch in the MythGuard Academy, but, um, but we're gonna give it a shot because I think you guys are up to it. So here's what's gonna happen. I am gonna use a Twitch feature uh, called giveaway feature and uh it's this is gonna it's gonna automatically draw somebody so here's what's gonna happen. I am there we go. I have opened a giveaway in the twitch chat so in the twitch chat, type exclamation point raffle, and you will be entered into the raffle to get and you'll be entered into the drawing now while you are entering yourselves into the drawing, let me tell you what we are. Giving away tonight. Tonight we are giving away a free token to our space program. So uh, you will get a token that is worth a uh, a a full month long module in our space program. Um, Our space program, of course, is a a very exciting program that we've been running now for exactly a year. I announced that last year in the State of the University address, uh, and we opened up. um, uh, We sort of launched space. Uh, launched into space last uh, last State of the University address. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, but it has been awesome. And there are so many exciting modules coming up. If you haven't had a chance to look at the modules that are being offered here in December and in January as well, then uh, you should uh, – uh, you definitely – should do that because there are some really cool, uh, really cool things. Um, Jack Rabbit, exactly. It is a nice new raffle uh, that, is being, uh, that is being that is being that has been opened up here. Uh, <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, um, and I'll make sure to close it before the monstrous crow comes. There you go. I know some of you are space veterans. Okay, so I'm gonna. let's see tell you what why don't i i'm going to talk about the first slide and then try to remind me uh to um uh try to remind me to come back and close and do the drawing um yeah there we go okay all right so the meeting with the white queen is not very auspicious you'll remember when Alice met the Red Queen, the Red Queen was quite impressive, especially compared to the flowers with whom she had been speaking prior to that. But um, she couldn't, the problem was she couldn't approach the Red Queen. Remember, it was the Red Queen that she had to walk away from in order to approach, right? Here, she sees the White Queen... And the White Queen is not very impressive. The White Queen only looked at her in a helpless, frightened sort of way, and kept repeating something in a whisper to herself that sounded like bread and butter, bread and butter. And Alice felt that if there were to be, if there was to be any conversation at all, she must manage it herself. So she began rather timidly, "Am I addressing the White Queen?" "Well, yes, if you call that addressing," said the the Queen said. "It isn't my notion of the thing at all." Alice thought it would never do to have an argument at the very beginning of their conversation, so she smiled and said, "'If your Majesty will only tell me the right way to begin, I'll do it as well as I can.' "'But I don't want it done at all!' groaned the poor Queen. "'I've been addressing myself for the last two hours!' It would have been all the better, as it seemed to Alice, if she had had got someone else to dress her. She was so dreadfully untidy." Every single thing's crooked, Alice thought to herself, and she's all over pins. May I put your shawl straight for you, she added aloud. Okay, so what do you think—this is an interesting kind of turn, right? We have seen many occasions, both in Alice in Wonderland and in Through the Looking Glass, where Alice's attempts— you know, when she, she makes a conversational gambit, but that gambit is foiled by the fact that whom whoever she is talking to simply refuses to play along, right? To play along with what are to Alice normal idioms or normal sort of social expectations, like the kinds of things that you say that are polite, um, even if their literal meaning is not uh, sort of what you intend, right? It's just the thing that you say, that kind of trend we've seen many times, right? And it sounds like exactly that kind of thing is going on here, right? Am I addressing the White Queen? Well, yes, if you call that addressing. Now, at first, and I have to admit, uh, this is one that works way better in print uh, than in audio form, right? Um, I listened to the audio version of this a bunch of times, and I was like, I don't get it. Like, it sounded to me like she was merely insulting Alice. Am I addressing the White Queen? Well, if you call that addressing, dressing, right? Um, that is, you're not addressing me. It's not, isn't my notion of the thing at all? And of course, it wasn't until I looked at the text and saw the hyphen between the A and dressing that um, I could see the mischief here, right? Um, the mischief, of course... Is that she's taking the word addressing in a completely different way. Right? Am I addressing the white queen? Um she is not dressing her. Um a hyphen dressing, she's um she is not addressing, she has not come to address the white queen. She's just addressing her with two D's, right, instead of a hyphen. Um <laughs> The White Queen confirms her. um, So again, it sounds at first like the White Queen is simply being rude. Like she is telling Alice that Alice has done things inappropriately. Now remember, remember what the Red Queen did. Remember the Red Queen with her continuous advice, right? Um, You know, like, keep your feet together and always remember who you are, right? She was constantly correcting Alice, offering her these sorts of... uh, um, these sorts of corrections. Um, I uh, this is a pun. It is a pun that the white queen is making to Mas. Definitely, um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so Alice's question in retrospect: Am I addressing? the white queen when taken in the white queen's um in the white queen's meaning right there's a couple different kinds of irony here the queen needs to be dressed she has dressed herself very badly as alice notices every single things cre- alice herself thinks that it would have been far better if she'd had someone else to dress her right um, and indeed, she is going to be addressing the White Queen fairly soon. She's going to fitch, f- try to fix her shawl and 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 take out a bunch of her pins and uh, comb her hair, in which the, the White Queen has lost the brush and lost the comb sometime yesterday. Um, she's going to be working towards addressing the Queen in the Queen's sense of that word, right? But she's not doing it yet um but remembering ahead which is a phrase of peculiar relevance in this chapter the queen's memory works both ways the queen remembers what is going to happen so alice's is... at first it sounds like the queen is simply insulting alice like she's addressing her improperly Then you realize, oh, wait, no, she's making a pun. Alice is addressing her with two Ds, and the queen is thinking that she is asking if she is dressing her, and uh, qua dressing, Alice is doing a very bad job. Then later, when we learn that the queen's memory works in both ways, we see, uh, no, actually, she was insulting Alice all along, right? Um, Alice has dressed her, or begun to dress her, but she didn't finish the job. And uh, so when the queen says, it isn't my notion of the thing at all, I believe that she's referring to the attempts that Alice is going to make to fix the queen's clothing. Right. Alice. Alice is not the queen's maid, you know, she's not been hired. They talk about hiring. We'll get there. Um, but she's not been hired for this job. And so she's doing what seems to her after this fact, right? After this point, she's doing what seems to her just a as much as she can, right? As a sort of an act of helpfulness. Um, and the queen, but the queen is clearly does not think she's done enough. Right. Um, throughout this scene, the queen's both ways, memory is relevant, um, Alice has only met the White Queen for the first time. She doesn't know who she is. They've never been introduced. But the White Queen remembers her. Remembers her from the conversation they are about to have. Right? Um, yeah. Um, Jackrabbit, it would make some sense for a White Pawn to dress the White Queen. Right? To be like the attendant unto the White Queen Doesn't seem inappropriate at all, right? Um, Anyway, Alice is put off, obviously, uh, by the Queen's address, by the Queen's response to her address. Um, If your majesty will only tell me the right way to begin, I'll do it as well as I can. But I don't want it done at all. I've been addressing myself for the last two hours. What do you think the Queen means when she says, I don't want it done at all? What does she not want done? Alice has just said, I'll do it as well as I can. And the antecedent of Alice's it in that phrase is begin. If your majesty will only tell me the right way to begin, I'll do it as well as I can. But I don't want it done at all. Beginning Or again is she thinking beyond what? Um Yeah, is possibly referring to getting trussed up in her clothing, Jocelyn? Yeah. Possibly, possibly. Um It seems to me that she's contrasting Alice's reference to beginning with the fact that she's been attempting to dress herself for the last two hours, right? Um, She doesn't want it begun at all. I suspect maybe she means, do you think? She means, I don't want you to begin. I already began two hours ago. The beginning's already taken care of, right? Um, I don't need anyone to begin. What she needs is somebody to finish it. I I suppose, right? Um, And this, I suppose, is another thing about living backwards, as the Queen is going to explain. Um, She's been addressing herself for the last two hours. Uh, She doesn't want anyone to begin. She wants to finish. Um... And again, from Alice's perspective, what else can she do but begin? Um, But the queen remembers Alice. Um, Alice has already begun. In the future, she begins to tidy the queen. Um, And now we're going backwards to the point where to Alice she hasn't begun. But from the queen's perspective she should be finishing right she's living backwards alice though we're still you know of course we're predominantly almost all of these things of course we can't really we're not in a position to understand when we read this passage until after we've read the entire chapter right we don't know how things work yet this is one of the chapters that i think is really fun to read uh to read a second time Because you literally cannot understand everything the first time. Um, We'll see another, of course, smaller example of that. But I think that it maps onto everything that's going on with the White Queen and Alice, especially in this chapter. Um, May I put your shawl straight for you? She added aloud. There. She's beginning from her perspective. Um, Alice says she should get somebody to help her with her clothes. And the queen says, oh, hang on. I almost did forget. Okay. Last chance uh, uh, to enter the raffle. I think you've all gotten a chance to enter the raffle. Um, Exclamation point raffle. Last chance to type that before I close the giveaway. And we do a drawing. to give away a free space token okay last chance there we go and now we'll have Mubot draw it for us all right Rowan of Gondor congratulations Rowan of Gondor wins the free space token so Rowan um, what you have to do if you already have a Blackberry account then you're cool um, send an email to info at signamu.org. If you don't, you need to create a BlackBerry account because we'll that's where your token will go. Um, that's how tokens work. Um, so anyway, but the first thing to do, is send an email to info at signamu.org and we can make sure that you uh, that you get your free token. Congratulations. Okay. Um, excellent. Oop, hang on. Didn't talk about this one yet. Um, all right. So anyway, so the Queen says, in response to Alice's suggestion that she find somebody uh, to help her dress, "'I'm sure I'll take you with pleasure,' the Queen said. "Twopence a week and jam every other day.' Alice couldn't help laughing, as she said, "'I don't want you to hire me, and I don't care for jam.' "'It's very good jam,' said the Queen. "'Well, I don't want any today at any rate.' Well, you couldn't have it if you did want it, the Queen said. The rule is, jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today, Alice objected. No, it can't, said the Queen. It's jam every other day. And today isn't any other day, you know. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. Okay. um, uh, All right, so... This would seem to be a more uh, kind of typical example of Alice of sorry of somebody being literal, right? Um, but it's not exactly in the same way. Like it's not like about Alice having her words um, being taken in an unexpectedly literal way, right? Um, Instead, we have the queen enticing her with jam, right? You get jam every other day uh, if you serve the queen. Um, This is not tempting to Alice, who doesn't care for jam. But then the queen explains that she couldn't have any today, even if she did want it. And there are two different ways in which the employees of the Queen are uh, systematically deprived of their jam payments, right? Um, uh, One is because she says the rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. That would be every other day, right? Yesterday and tomorrow, but not today. And Alice objects to this, right It must come sometimes to jam today right i mean it's it's if you're going to have jam tomorrow and it gets to be tomorrow, then it's jam day right that's that's how it works. She explains, but not if the concept of jam is merely applied to tomorrow now it is hard to see how the how the concept of jam could be equally applied to yesterday, right. Um, because although the jam tomorrow may never come, as it truly never is tomorrow, it's always today. Um, but by the nature of things, it has to have been yesterday at some point. But I guess that's not true either, now is it? It always is today. You can never, you never really had yesterday any more than you ever really get tomorrow. All you ever have is today, I suppose. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's the second part, right? It's jam every other day, and today isn't any other day, you know. Yes. So another way of looking at it, right, is if it's... Any, so you could say... Uh, you, could, you can take the phrase any other day to mean one of two things, right? It can either mean on alternate days or it can mean any other day that is not today, right? There's today and there's any other day, but it can never be any other day. It can only ever be today, right? So apart from the fact that this is a fairly, um, well swindling payment plan, right, to pay people on. Um, but uh but in addition oh Jackrabbit I love that. Yeah I hadn't thought of that. Um Jackrabbit points out that it's a it's also a Latin pun. Um yum I A M, which basically is jam, right? Um, yum is Latin for now when used in the past and future tenses. Um uh, And uh, YAM can be translated already as well. So, um, yes. um, You can't have, you can't ever have jam now is a kind of funny internal contradiction in that way, Jackrabbit, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. So, um, the larger point here. Again, on the one hand, we have another example of Alice being, like, gotcha right, by, uh, a, by literal interpretation of words. <clears throat> but there's much more that's going on with this, and it's all very relevant to what's happening with the White Queen here. What we have, what we're talking about here is time, right? Time. And the flow of time. It's always today. It's never tomorrow. And it's never yet. You're you're never. You're not in yesterday. You're not in tomorrow. You're only ever in today. Um, Today. There's today. And there's every other day. You can talk about every other day. But you can never experience it every other day. If jam happens in every other day, jam will never happen today. You can't, says the queen. That's not possible. So again, thinking about our relationship with time now in a different way, Um, our relationship with the present, the present is the only place we ever are and the only place where we can ever experience anything. Jam, for instance, right? Yeah. So Alice is dreadfully confused, but it gets worse. The queen asked her what she remembers, and Alice says, well, she remembers the things that have happened, right? She remembers backwards. And the queen says, it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the queen remarks. What sort of things do you remember best? Alice ventured to ask. "'Oh, things that happened the week after next,' the Queen replied in a careless tone. "'For instance now,' she went on, sticking a large piece of plaster on her finger as she spoke, "'there's the King's messenger. He's in prison now, being punished, "'and the trial doesn't even begin until next Wednesday, and of course the crime comes last of all.' "'Suppose he never commits the crime,' said Alice. "'That would be all the better, wouldn't it?' the Queen said, "'as she bound the plaster round her finger with a bit of ribbon.' Alice felt there was no denying that. "'Of course it would be all the better,' she said. "'But it wouldn't be all the better his being punished.' "'You're wrong there, at any rate,' said the Queen. "'Were you ever punished?' "'Only for faults,' said Alice. "'And you were all the better for it, I know,' the Queen said triumphantly. "'Yes, but then I had done the things I was punished for,' said Alice. "'That makes all the difference.' But if you had not done them, the queen said, that would have been better still. Better and better and better. Her voice went higher with each better till it got quite to a squeak at last. Okay. Um, Now. What is going on here? What is the nature of the disagreement? Alice's perspective and the Queen's perspective, right? Um, Once again, we are being confronted with the question of cause and effect. This is Alice's concern, right? Alice is worried that he might never commit the crime. And when the Queen says it would be far better if he didn't, didn't commit the crime we don't know exactly what the crime was right but whatever it was it's a crime and and that's bad and it's better not to do could not commit crimes now isn't it right um so uh so yeah you you don't you don't we don't we'd rather he didn't commit the crime that would be better but Alice sticks to it, right? She, she can't deny that yet. No, it would be best if he did not commit the crime, of course. Um, but it wouldn't be all the better his being punished because of course, punishments should be the consequences of crimes. There should be a cause and effect there. You commit the crime and then you do the time as a consequence of committing the crime. So Alice in saying, it wouldn't be all the better his being punished she's saying it would be a wrong thing to do, right? If you punish somebody and they've not done anything wrong, um, the queen's argument that she goes on to make seems very tenuous, right? You've been punished and you were the better for it, weren't you? You were improved by your punishment. And so therefore... It would be better and better and better if you hadn't done the things better to, so the best case scenario is to not commit any crimes to not uh not to commit any faults and then be punished for them nevertheless right then you get the improvement the improvement of experiencing the punishment without having done the harm of committing the crime now um There's a kind of logic there, right, which we would find ourselves on its face in a similar position to Alice, right? There's no denying that. It's, it's not like we're saying, like, well, no, we, we, we really want crimes to be committed, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, exactly, J.J., the, the, the reason punishing a child is good— is because it corrects the child like that, that's why i think that's why alice uses the word faults right were you punished i was only punished for faults that is i had i had i had manifested that there was a fault in my character which needed correction and the punishment was intended to correct that fault and so again in that way although in this kind of abstract sense in which the queen seems to be wanting to take this. If you take merely the premise, uh, punishment always leads to good results, right? Always leads to correction, always leads to improvement. Um, then, uh, uh then the queen's argument would seem to be perfectly logical. The best case scenario is more punishment and less crime, right? Um, But exactly, JJ, just as you were laying it out there, um, just as you were laying it out there, there is, it's not only an abstract question of justice, which of course was what the first thing that Alice is pointing to. That's, I believe, what she means when she says it wouldn't be all the better his being punished, right? Um, You know, would he be all the better for it? Well, I don't know about that. But it certainly would be a wrong thing in the people administering the punishment upon him to administer a punishment for a thing that he had never done. That would be wrong. That would be bad. If Even if you were to grant the Queen's premise that punishment always results in improvement, a dubious premise, but even if you were to grant that premise, um, that doesn't mean that everything is better and better and better. If no crimes are committed and more punishment happens, right? That's not logical. And the reason that it isn't logical, it's not, ju- it's not only on a question of, uh, uh, on an issue sort of, of abstract justice in that way. But it's also, for exactly the reasons that you were saying, JJ, um, the, why, what makes a punishment good? What is the point of punishing? a child, right? To correct the fault, to use Alice's uh, term there, right? Um, And if the child does not have the fault, then the punishment is not going to bring about that correction. All of these things, even even what I was calling abstract justice, is still at the end of the day, a cause and effect concern. All of these things are related to cause and effect, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And of course, yes, there is the third term when it comes to the king's messenger. There also is a trial as well, right? So first he's punished. Um, His trial doesn't begin until next Wednesday. And then, of course, the crime comes last of all. Uh, And of course... When you think about the trial in the middle of that, the apparent absurdity of the situation is made the more acute. What is the purpose of a trial? The purpose of a trial is to decide to discover or to prove what did happen in order for the judge to then be able to say what is going to happen, right? Um, What were the events And, you know, like first we're establishing what the cause was right in order to then establish what the results of that cause should be. Um, How is a trial on what basis would a trial operate if it takes place prior to the crime? Um, In its way, it is the most it seems anyway, the most absurd element of that entire thing. Um, So yes, the entire premise of what the queen goes on to speak of about punishment and how punishments are good. um, Relies on there's a there's a the entire th- everything the White Queen is doing here seems to be disregarding, or no, it's more than disregarding, isn't it? I say disregarding cause and effect. It's more than disregarding cause and effect. It's um, aggressively rejecting cause and effect, uh, taking taking things completely out of the context of cause and effect. But, but, all of our objections, oh, almost all of our objections, the Queen's argument at the end about uh, um, the, uh, her implication anyway, she doesn't explicitly say it, um, that all punishment results in improvement, right? Um, But it seems to be the premise that underlies her assertions there at the end. Um, With the possible exception of that one, everything else here relies upon our insistence on cause and effect, but it's not, the problem is with cause and effect itself. It's with the orientation of cause and effect in time they have the sequence correct it's just backwards punishment first trial second crime third but that would make perfect sense if you were living backwards as the queen claims to be living and if your memory worked in both directions as her as she claims that hers works right This is looking glass land, right? Things don't work the same way here that they do back at home. Did you notice the thing that happened in the middle of this conversation? This is one of those other things that you don't really understand until you read this passage a second time. Why is she binding a plaster around her finger with a bit of ribbon in the middle of this passage here? That would be all the better, wouldn't it, the queen said, as she bound the plaster around her finger with a bit of ribbon. She's getting out the plaster before she's now binding her finger with plaster because she's going to prick her finger on a pin soon. It hasn't happened yet. How does this happen with the queen? First, she bandages her finger. Then she screams in pain. Then she pricks her finger. That's how it works, right? We'll see that here in a second. So she starts screaming right after. Better and better and better. She starts, um, uh, she starts screaming like a train whistle, right? "'What is the matter?' she said, as soon as there was a chance of making herself heard. "'Have you pricked your finger?' "'I haven't pricked it yet,' the queen said. "'But I soon shall—oh, oh, oh!' "'When do you expect to do it?' Alice asked, feeling very much inclined to laugh. "'When I fasten my shawl again,' the poor queen groaned out. "'The brooch will come undone directly. Oh, oh!' And as she said the words, the brooch flew open, and the queen clutched wildly at it, and tried to clasp it again.' Take care, cried Alice. You're holding it all crooked. And she caught at the brooch, but it was too late. The pin had slipped and the queen had pricked her finger. That accounts for the bleeding, you see, she said to Alice with a smile. Now you understand the way things happen here. The queen's assertion, like the queen's description of the uh, judicial process in Looking Glass Country, right, Um, seems To be not merely, you know, some kind of wacky, um, you know, alternative, irrational (laughs) proceeding. You know what I mean? Um, It's not like I saw somebody compare it to the thought police um, from 1984 to thought crime. It's not exactly like that. Um, that merely is saying you don't have to perform an action in order to be guilty of crime. If you think a wrong thing, that is a punishable act, but the direction of causality still works totally normally, right? It's a little bit closer to, I mean, I was thinking about this passage. I just recently watched, um, Moon Knight, the, uh, one of the more recent, um, I guess it was from this summer, uh, Marvel series. Um, and, uh, that has a, one of its primary plot line is about somebody who wants to punish crime before it, you know, so it's going to, uh, this Egyptian goddess who's going to weigh the hearts of people see whether they are going to be worthy or not. And if they're not going to be worthy and if they're going to be doing unworthy things in the future, she's going to kill them in advance. Right. Um, and I was like, "Hey, the white queen would approve of the, of this of this system." Um, yeah, so that's more like what the queen is describing here, right? Um, she's not creating some kind of wacky, um, you know, upside down totalitarian state in which you arbitrarily punish people and say you're doing them good. Um, Things legitimately, cause and effect legitimately works backwards for her. As soon as she pricks her finger, she's completely free of pain. Right? That accounts for the bleeding, you see. Now you understand the way things happen here. She had been bleeding before. She was bleeding. She bandaged her finger. Um, she screamed in pain. And then she stabbed it. Right. Um, Yeah. So it appears in that case, there isn't necessarily a problem with the judicial system in looking-class land, I suppose. Right. But I am back to agreeing with what Alice said before, that it's rather confusing, isn't it? Um, If she, she experiences things backwards, she's living backwards, as she says. And we see the pricking of her finger would seem to show that that's true. But she's interacting with Alice in the other direction as Alice is moving forwards in time, as seems only appropriate to her to do. Look at the actual pricking of the finger that happens in the middle here. So she says the brooch will come undone directly. Um, she foresees that she shall soon prick her finger. Now, remember, she is in the midst of experiencing the pain of pricking her finger. So it's not like she's like, I foretell that in the future I shall prick my finger. She is experiencing the effect of which the pricking of her finger is the cause. And so there's nothing wonderful about the fact that she knows what's going to cause it. What seems strange to us and clearly to Alice is if you know in advance that you're going to prick your finger, why would you do it? In fact, she knows exactly the circumstances under which it is going to happen. When I fasten my shawl again, the brooch will uncome come undone directly. It's about to happen. And then, as she said the words, the brooch flew open, and the queen, the queen clutched wildly at it and tried to clasp it again. And Alice can see it all happening. She just heard the queen predict it, and now she's watching the queen scrabbling with her brooch. And she's like, take care. You're holding it all crooked. And Alice attempts to intervene and catch at the brooch. But it was too late. The pin slips and the queen pricks her finger. So, Mighty Felix, I, I do think we're supposed to... It, uh, that question, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy, is a... um. um is a very um, i think it's it's a very appropriate question because to alice that's what it looks like because alice is moving forward so um yeah And then we go back to the beginning, and the confusion at the beginning of the conversation, and as I say, it begins to sound quite different, doesn't it? Right? Yeah, it does make you think of the of the of the story device where a character tries to avert a prophecy and ends up f- fulfilling it. Yeah, exactly. Except that's not what the queen's doing. What we have is a. The moment of the pricking of the queen's finger is like this crossover in time where Alice, who's going one direction, and the queen is going the other direction. And the pivotal event is that pricking of the finger. And Alice knows it's going to happen because the queen has told her, The queen knows it's going to happen because she's experienced it. She's literally experiencing the pain of the pricking when she's saying that it's going to happen. But to her, it's not in the future. She's living backwards. So to her, it's in the past. Um, And she is speaking of the past. So it's Alice whose direction in time is working differently. (laughs) Um, Lalanco, it's a little bit like Merlin and Arthur in The Once, Once and Future King, but I actually think this is much more thoughtful that, um, I need to reread it. I haven't reread The Once and Future King in years, but, um, the idea of Merlin living backwards never really seemed to be played out in this kind of detail that is thought through in this kind of uh, T.H. White's Merlin living backwards seems, he seems to me to do it in a very big picture sense. He lives backwards in the sense that he remembers what's going to happen in the future, like hundreds of years in the future. Uh, but I don't think you as well, again, maybe I missed it. It's been years since I read the book. So, um, I'm kind of reaching that delightful time in my life. Nobody ever told me that this was one of the benefits of getting older, but I love it. Um, Have you ever said, oh man, I wish I could have the experience of reading this book for the first time all over again? Turns out you can. All you've got to do is get old, right? Holy cow. There are so many books that I read like when I was in college or something and if you just wait long enough to read it again, it's like reading it. It's like you're like reading a book you've never read in your life, right? I have that experience so many times now. Um, it's really quite delightful. Um, so yes, I am sure when I read the Once in Future King again, it's going to be like reading it for the first time. So I don't want to make too many assertions about it. Let me just say that when I read it, um, and I, I read it a few times, but again, many years ago. Um, It was... um, uh, uh, It was... I did not get the impression... I could have missed it, but I did not get the impression that he was interested in this level of cause and effect deviation. Um, It was more a, like, I know what's coming thing. Um, More of a play on the way in which... Um, I felt and felt even more strongly when I saw, um, uh, when I saw the, um, when I then went on after that to read Sir Thomas Mallory, um, that the way that Sir Thomas Mallory's Merlin just goes around the countryside telling everybody what's going, he, he goes around putting up historical monuments to events that haven't happened yet. That's his job, right? That's what Merlin in Sir Thomas Mallory does is he goes writing in gold letters on rocks, right? He goes to a clearing and he writes on the rock, like in this clearing, uh, the two greatest knights in the world shall meet and fight. And then this happens. And like three, 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 four hundred pages later, you know, uh, Sir Lancelot and Sir Tristram meet each other and they fight nearly to the death. Uh, And then like they're both lying on the ground and they drag themselves over and they find themselves looking up at this rock that says in gold letters, here shall the two greatest knights uh, in the world meet and fight together. This kind of thing is happening all over the place. Uh, and uh, Merlin, who goes away fairly quick, uh, fairly early in the narrative um, uh, in uh, uh, in Mallory, industriously spends his time erecting historical monuments to future events. And so I always felt that uh, The Ones in Future King was kind of playing on that idea. Right. Um. What Carol is doing is something much more sort of up close than that. We have seen the ways in which Carol was sort of playing with the idea of cause and effect. Remember the looking glass insects. Uh, re- remember the death of the bread and butterfly. Um, the uh, inexorable and universal... <laughs> <laughs> deaths by starvation of the bread and butterflies, right? Um, there are lots of places in which we see Lewis Carroll playing on this. Remember, we were seeing it again in with Tweedledum and Tweedledee, um, where you had um, the relationship of the poem to the action there. Um So, yes, we've had all kinds of this, but here is now sort of the closest scrutiny of that question. Let us think about the role of the forward progress of time in cause and effect. And we are asked to imagine ourselves here in this sequence into a separate world where if time works backwards for some people but not for others, cause and effect is going to get seriously messed up. Now, if this were really a kind of Oedipus situation, Mighty Felix, Alice's attempt to stop the Queen from pricking her finger would have been what caused the pricking of the finger, right? Um, But again, it's not that she was too late. She didn't do anything. She attempts to stop it, but it fails because the thing already happened. Of course it's too late. It already happened in the future. Um, and there's no way to construct sentences like that that don't sound like nonsense. But what Carol is doing is sort of an investigation of that, a sort of, um, uh, I don't know how to say, um, a sort of... exploration of what nonsense is. What is sense? What is nonsense? What causes something to make sense? What kind of assumptions do we make? What kind of assumptions underlie our sensible things? Remember how, again, going back to the conversational gambit thing that she began with in this conversation, with, for instance, the Mad Hatter and the March Hare, Um, She would make assumptions about her turns of phrase, which they would explode. And that was fairly simple, right? Here, Lewis Carroll is drilling deep down, and it begins by sounding like he's just doing that same thing again. But instead, what he's doing is looking at what are the assumptions that underlie how we define what we consider nonsense and what we don't consider nonsense. It sounds like the utterest nonsense. Nonsense at best. To have the punishment first, the trial second, and the crime third. But that's only if we assume that time works in the same, flows in the same direction for everybody. If you imagine a looking-glass world in which that is not the case, then what we might call nonsense is not necessarily so. Notice again where she comes up. That accounts for the bleeding, you see. Accounts for. She's using explicit cause and effect language. The queen explains. This is of course how it's supposed to work. Now you understand. Don't you see? Cause and effect was not turned upside down. It was not violated in any way. It just... Went backward. Which is how it would go if you're living backwards. More on nonsense. Um, the Queen asks Alice how old she is, and Alice says, seven and a half years exactly. You needn't say exactly, the Queen remarked. I can believe it without that. Now I'll give you something to believe. I'm just one hundred and one, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the Queen in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. There goes the shawl again. Yes, this is a very famous quote. I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. <clears throat> um, yes, a very famous quote. But now, seeing it in the context of this chapter and what's been going on with Alice and the Queen, what do we do with this? Once again, so starting, let's start like Alice would at the beginning of this passage, not like the Queen might at the end of it. We begin by what sounds at first superficially like another one of those examples of some of one of Alice's listeners seizing upon her words and kind of using it against her. Right. But that's not exactly what happens. Alice said, I'm seven years and a half exactly. And the Queen says, you needn't say exactly. Well, she didn't say exactly. She said exactly. Um, whenever I read this, I have a feeling there's a joke I'm missing. I don't know what it is. Because um, I'm missing it but but i have a sense that he's making a joke there that i'm not getting um but anyway the word exactly is not i believe a word i don't believe it has ever been a word um but uh but i have a feeling that he's conveying some kind of joke with that but it's going over my head um Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be some kind of a play on the word actually. Uh, first fish, I agree. But I don't, I don't see the point of that exactly. Um, anyway. Um, what the Queen draws attention to So ignoring that fact for just a moment, well, possibly indefinitely, unless I figure it out, uh, or somebody else can explain it to me. Um, The queen says she needn't have said the word exactly, because she says, I can believe it without that. The queen's supposition or presumption seems to be that Alice added that extra word of emphasis exactly, not in order to convey meaning, but in order to um, uh, what, encourage belief, right? Facilitate belief. That's not at all what Alice meant when she said exactly, she was conveying information, right? Um, I am precisely seven and a half years old. I'm not vaguely seven and a half years old, right? Um, I mean, just like I, you know, my son, whose footsteps I hear through the ceiling above me, uh, might say, I'm 14 and a half. But he's not exactly 14 and a half. He's a little more than 14 and a half. He's actually about 14 and two thirds at this point. Um, and Alice is specifying exactly what her age is, seven and a half. Now, of course, I think we've all known seven-year-olds who would... Uh, it, there's a big difference between being seven and being seven and a half it makes a big difference uh, to people that age very often. Um, but the queen takes the word as, again, as if it's a sort of assertion, an assistance to belief. Yeah. Mighty Felix, you're very right. You don't stay exactly any age for very long. Um, yes. One could have challenged her statement that she was seven and a half exactly. Exactly? No, you're not, no, you're not. Even if you were at the moment you said the word by chance, it's not true anymore, is it? Um, So yes, there's there's a certain way in which it's almost like jam today, right? Just as you can never have jam today, so you can never really exactly be seven and a half. Um, yeah, uh, yes. Um, but that's not where she goes with it. Now I'll give you something to believe. I'm just one hundred and one, five months and a day. And Alice says that she can't believe that. The queen pounces on another of her words. Can't you try again, draw a long breath and shut your eyes, right? Focus. And maybe you can do it. There's no use trying. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I did it for almost... I did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Okay. Yes, Mighty Felix, I think that's true. That... It's impossible for Alice to be exactly seven and a half. But the Queen believes it anyway, because she's very good at believing impossible things. Right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. The Queen speaks of believing things as if it's a matter of effort and practice. With proper training, you can get yourself to believe, you can bring yourself to believe impossible things. Um, but you've got to practice. When she was young, she used to keep at it half an hour every day. Now she's so accomplished that she's believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. I mean, she's making it look easy now because she's been doing it for so long what is the difference well, again what is the what is the issue here the issue here is alice says there's no use trying one can't believe impossible things either a thing is impossible Or thing is not impossible. And the queen doesn't even acknowledge that possibility. Remember what this is just exactly like. This is just exactly like the Red Queen. When you say nonsense, I've seen nonsense compared with which that would be as sensible as a dictionary. There it seemed to be merely a matter of like comparative versus absolute value, right? Here, Alice, what is um, what is kind of under scrutiny here is the word impossible itself. Um, if you Think about it this way, right? Alice is saying, I cannot do it. It is impossible. The word impossible, after all, means you can't do it. Right? Not possible to be done. The queen is saying, if you try hard enough, with practice, focus, dedication, and concentration... You can do impossible things. Believe impossible things. It's only that you have not had enough practice. Can't you? The queen said in a pitying tone. The question comes to what you... Again, to what the word impossible means... And on the one hand, it would seem like, okay, the queen is just changing the meaning of the word impossible. But this is, I think, where the question of belief comes in. She's not asking Alice to do an impossible thing. She's asking her to believe an impossible thing. That's the thing that she says. um, That's the thing that she says can be done with practice. She's not done six impossible things before breakfast. She's believed six impossible things before breakfast. What is at stake here is not actually what is possible and what is not possible. But what you're willing to believe might be possible. And what you're not willing to believe might be possible. Again, there's a way in which... As so much of this chapter, as is true of so much of this chapter, um, it goes both ways. Reading this through at first, it seems obvious, like I'm laughing along with Alice, right? What, one can't believe impossible things. It's not a question of choice, it's not a question of practice or trying harder, right? But the more you think about it, actually, the Queen is quite right. You can believe any number of impossible things if you try. Yeah, there's no reason not to. Again, she's not saying you can do impossible things. Just that you can believe impossible things. And Mighty Felix, as you pointed out, she's already done it. It's impossible, or at least enormously unlikely, that Alice is, in fact, seven and a half exactly. But the Queen says, I can believe it. Now I'll give you something to believe. I'm 101. You can believe that if you try, right? Um... Yeah. now how does this connect with the rest of what's been going on with the queen and with Alice the queen lives backwards she lives the other way things don't work for her in her world she's sharing a world with Alice but she, things don't work for her the same way that they work, They, they don't work the same way for her that they work for Alice. She has been all along challenging Alice's framework from the first beginning of their conversation, challenging her assumptions, not just about what words you use, which is what it sounded like she was doing at first, but much more deeply than that, how time itself works. Um, by the way, you see how this maps onto chess? Who's Alice? She's a pawn. Pawns can't go backwards. They can only go forwards. Queens can go both forwards and backwards. And in every other direction. Right? Of course the queen has experiences the world differently from Alice. Right um, I love those moments in this book when you remember how the chess framework overlays all of this stuff that's happening, like that he has not forgotten uh, the chess overlay, right um, in all of this. And suddenly, what we... Except as normal, the direction of the flow of time, and therefore the sequence of cause and effect events, what impossible means, and how we should be related to the impossible. All of these things begin to look quite differently, right? Those things are now like a pawn plodding across the chessboard where there are other pieces that are moving in diagonals crooked lines forwards and backwards um yeah and this is we were talking from the beginning like what's the relationship between looking glass world and ours and um, what it, we were kind of expecting at the beginning, it looked at first, perhaps like the way that she kept switching around and finding herself coming back in the house when she was trying to leave it. Like things just seemed to be the opposite, more or less the opposite. She, you know, was going in the the direction that was the opposite in the way she intended to go. It looked like we were just doing a, a mirror reversal thing. But now I think we begin to see more clearly The whole relationship is quite different and a very great deal more complicated. Alice is a pawn, and that's important. We, the framework that we can... Alice is a normal little girl and a quite normal little girl. And we, following Alice, are plotting in our one space at a time way across. Remember her not buying a train ticket back in square three when she found herself suddenly on the train and hadn't bought a ticket yet. Um, that was the one time the pawn skips a space when it is not following its normal sequence. And so she finds herself out of the normal sequence of cause and effect. She's on the train, but she never saw a station. She was never in a station. She never had an opportunity to buy a ticket. Right? Um, and, yeah. Anyway, so it's not so much looking glass world. Turns out to be not so much a mirror world in which everything is backwards. It turns out instead to be, to sort of, show us our perspective as being like that of the pawn. And while meanwhile, all around us, pieces who operate by very different rules, doesn't mean there are no rules. It's just that their rules are not going to be the same as yours. And you can't assume that they are right. Um, Speaking of assuming things don't work by your rules. The Transition She crosses a brook Chasing after the shawl, she crosses a brook Alice does Oh, much better, cried the queen Her voice rising to a squeak as she went on Much better, 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 better The last word ended in a long bleat So like a sheep that Alice quite started She looked at the queen Who seemed to have suddenly wrapped herself up in wool Alice rubbed her eyes and looked again She couldn't make out what had happened at all. Was she in a shop? And was that really... Was it really a sheep that was sitting on the other side of the counter? Rubbish she would. She could make nothing more of it. She was in a little dark shop, leaning with her elbows on the counter, and opposite to her was an old sheep, sitting in an armchair, knitting, and every now and then leaving off to look at her through a great pair of spectacles. Okay, so... This is not the first time she has crossed over a brook and it has sometimes led to a sudden shift. The suddenest shift was when the train jumped over the brook and then she was suddenly not on the train any longer. Um, thus beginning the rather long sequence in square number four. Yeah, square four. The Tweedledum and D square. Um, which she has now finally crossed out of. Um, and the white queen has suddenly turned into a sheep and she is now suddenly in a shop. Alice is completely discombobulated here. Yeah, Sarah, I, I don't know exactly what to make of the joke about the sheep knitting with wool, right? But it seems to me that the um, the kind of uh, focal point of that is that first sentence of the second paragraph there. She looked at the queen who seemed to have suddenly wrapped herself up in wool. Meaning she's covered with fleece because she's now a sheep or meaning she's actually in a woolen shawl or something the queen was did have a shawl which may well have been um, which may well have been wool uh, but I I don't think but I don't know I can't tell exactly what happened there the relationship between the sheep and the wool is not really clear <laughs> exactly Um, yeah yeah um especially when things get weird with the knitting which happens relatively quickly here um i want to look at the next section in conjunction with this strange transition she asks she's asked what she wants to buy and she's looking around for something to buy and everywhere she looks There's nothing there, except she can see everything other places. But whenever she looks at a shelf, that shelf is empty. And she sees a thing out of the corner of her eye that she might like. But every time she looks at it, it moves away. And she's trying to trace it, to follow it around the room. And she can't get there. So in the end, the sheep, as Alice is spinning in the room, the sheep says, are you a child or a teetotum? A teetotum is a little top. Um, a a top that you spin with your fingers, like a dreidel, basically. Um, are you a child or a teetotum? The sheep said, as she took up another pair of needles. You'll make me giddy soon if you go on turning round like that. She was now working with 14 pairs at once, pairs of knitting needles, and Alice couldn't help looking at her in great astonishment. How can she knit with so many? The puzzled child thought to herself. She gets more and more like a porcupine every minute. Can you row? the sheep asked, handing her a pair of knitting needles as she spoke. Uh, Yes, a, a little, but not on land, and not with needles, Alice was beginning to say, when suddenly the needles turned into oars in her hands, and she found they were in a little boat, gliding along between banks. So there was nothing for it but to do her best. Um... Okay. Um, Yes. Mighty Felix, you are right. When a knitter uses double pointed needles, they can have as many as five needles in their hands at once. It looks very impressive and confusing to a non-knitter. Maybe Carol is playing around with and exaggerating that. Um, uh, Yes. Yes, I think so. Um, But also, she gets more and more like a porcupine every minute. Well, she was wrapped in wool before, that is in her shawl, and then she became a sheep. And now she has all of these needles sticking out, and is becoming more and more like a porcupine. I was expecting her to become a porcupine. Um, uh, that seemed a um, an evolution. Now, can you row? The sheep asks, handing her a pair of knitting needles. And yes, rowing is a knitting term. I don't know too much, Sarah, about knitting, um, but I did know that. I did get that pun. Alice is not a knitter. She is obviously also not a rower. It was many years after I had read this chapter before uh, uh, a former crew team member had explained to me the joke later in this chapter. The joke about catching crabs, which I did not know at all. Um, So she is... um, Can you row? (laughs) She asks... And gives her kn- knitting needles in order to row, like, the knitting thing, presumably. Alice is confused, as she might well be, right? Um, I mean, she's suddenly living in, like, a world in which... Uh, well, it's like she's suddenly living inside Arthur Harrow's brain, right? Um, as everything that's being said is being turned through a pun and then being made literal Um, as she's being handed the knitting needles and asked if she rows and she's thinking about rowing and then she um, finds herself on a boat gliding between banks and it keeps going she's the sheep commands her feather which is a rowing term um, about how you do the oars. "'Didn't you hear me say feather?' the sheep cried angrily, taking up a bunch of needles. "'Indeed I did,' said Alice. "'You've said it very often, and very loud. Please, where are the crabs?' Because the sheep said she would catch a crab if she wasn't careful. "'In the water, of course,' said the sheep, sticking some of the needles into her hair as her hands were full. "'Feather, I say!' "'Why do you say feather so often?' Alice asked at last, rather vexed. "'I'm not a bird.' You are," said the sheep. "You're a little goose." Um. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like I guess things just keep going. Through. So, do you understand what it means to catch a crab? Um, right? I mean, uh, 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 again, this is this is this is the thing I didn't know. I was guessing that feather was a was a a rowing thing. I didn't realize that catching a crab was a feather was a, was a feather thing, uh, a rowing thing, right? So when you catch a crab is when you, you know, so you you pull on the oar, and then as you as you lift the oar out of the ground, and you, you know, you you pull it back across the top of the water, and then dip it in the water to row it again, right? Um, but when you as you're going across the top of the water, if it catches the top of the water. Um, of course, you get sudden resistance, and what will often happen is that the ore will jump in your hand and will often hit you in the face, just as it does to Alice. It catches her under the chin, right? Um, uh, yeah, so you're losing control, of your ore. But it's it, it so it means and and so to catch a crab is is the expression that is used for that, which has happened to you when that happens. Um, and Alice, of course, thinks this is to, for, thinks that catching a crab sounds like a wonderful issue. Oh, the dear little crab. I would love to do that. Right? How delightful. Um, and, of course, when she does catch a crab, she wonders where the crab is. She doesn't see it. Right? Um, but, in fact, the oar does hit her in the face, uh, which she doesn't enjoy. And she's doubly sad because she missed the crab. Right? There was, you know, she was told there was a crab there. And... Um, yeah, boy. When I, I remember first reading this book when I was a kid, and I had no idea of that. I'd never heard that phrase in my life, and I was so I thought there was like literally a crab in the water that like caught on to the end of her oar, and I'm like, is that what happened? I mean, I wouldn't put it past this book to actually do that, um, but um, but yes. So we find ourselves here while rowing in this strange world. And of course, we have the play on feather and bird, and that she's a little goose, um, because she is not tracking with what is happening here at all. Um, she wasn't tracking with the knitting thing, Sarah. She isn't tracking with the rowing thing, right? With the with the the sculling thing, perhaps I should say, though that introduces a whole new set of puns, doesn't it? Um, the significance of feather—that's the command for I. I don't know exactly. I don't know enough about rowing to be able to explain it, but my understanding is it's about how to it's a it's a rowing command like how you're supposed to do the oars how you how she's she's giving her instructions for how to row basically but Alice doesn't understand it as a command that is when the sheep says feather she is that's a verb right it's an a verb in the imperative mood. She is commanding her to feather with the oars. And Alice not only does not understand the command, she doesn't understand that it is a command. She thinks the sheep is saying a noun, not a verb. Why, <laughs> why do you, why do you say feather so often? Um, you've said it very often and very loud. Why do you keep yelling feather? I'm not a bird. There are no feathers around here. Well, there certainly aren't because Alice isn't doing it, right? There we go. Sarah has a definition. The rower pushes the oar handle down so the uh, oar blade comes out of the water. Just as the oar blade is being removed from the water, the rower rotates the oar handle 90 degrees so that the blade is again parallel to the water. Right. So you know you've got the you know the blade which goes down in the water to push it around. You lift up the oar and then then you turn it flat. Right. Um, that action is referred to as feathering. Okay. That was vaguely what I was guessing. Right. And of course, why do you do that? Why do you feather your oars? So as not to catch a crab, if you keep the, oar, the the blade of the oar vertical, right, which of course it needs to be in order to push the water, and then you lift it out of the water, if you keep it vertical as you go back across, you're likely to catch the bottom of the blade on the surface of the water and catch a crab, right? But you would feather it in that way, right? You'd lay it flat so that it goes, goes across the surface of the water without catching crabs. Um yeah, so Tomas, you're right. once again, we see language here as a means of not communicating, right? Um, but there is a there is a vast gulf. and but now notice the kind of thing in both cases, both with um, the both with boating and with knitting, in both cases, The sheep is using specialized vocabulary. If you have never rode a boat before, you have no reason to know that that's what feather means. And you would certainly have no reason to think that that's what catching a crab means. Those are two expressions that are, they're jargon, right? They're very narrow jargon, narrow in the sense of restricted to a a very particular thing which if you don't happen to have exposure to that, if you don't happen to know anything about boating, um, you're going to have no idea what it means to feather or that the word feather would be used as a verb. Um, and you're not going to know what it what it means to catch a crab. That's just not... A, and how would you possibly know if you had never been exposed to that? Similarly, um, if somebody hands you wool and... Knitting needles. If somebody handed me uh, knitting needles and said, "Can you row?" I I might have thought just as Alice does, um, not with knitting needles, right? Um, because the word "row" used as a verb, I wouldn't also normally think of rowing a boat, right? Um, so. Um, yeah. Anyhow, um, all of this is, uh, um, yes, we have words failing to communicate. If you think about it, it's almost like the opposite of the um, <clears throat> the Mad Hatter in March Hare trick, where you take a word, which is a very common phrase, right? A word that is being used... In a way which is, by the literal usage of the word, a little strange or a little unusual, but a common idiom. Everybody knows what you mean. And instead, we have very specific things. In fact, very specific instructions in the case of feather, feather, um, feather or you'll catch a crab. That's a very specific, it's not a very it's, it's a very particular, um, instruction and yet it's going to be completely unknown to most people. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so yes. And Arthur, you will have noticed that I am studi- studiously avoiding, uh, your medical pun on catching crabs. Um, which is, of course, quite another thing again. Um, And let me just say, Arthur, I'm just as glad that we didn't get a third sudden transition there um, uh, to an examination room. Uh, So anyhow, um, you medical people. So, So what's the pattern here? The pattern here is... particular and, in fact, unusual associations with particular words. Um, A knitter might row, but that's not what most people will think. A rower might feather, but Alice is not a bird and sees no feathers anywhere around, Um, whether or not she is, as the sheep accuses. A little goose, metaphorically, figurative goose, not a literal goose. Um. So, what's the pattern? What's the pattern? Look, Sarah, I did it again. Back to knitting. Ha. Anyway, sorry. Um. Remember the context of all of this wordplay. Is. Suddenly a world, um, suddenly a world in which things keep changing. She suddenly finds herself in a shop. The white queen has suddenly turned into a sheep and she's afraid it's going to turn into a porcupine. Um, she doesn't know how she got in the shop. She can't understand why she can't see find things in the shop, when she starts looking, she then suddenly finds herself in a boat. The world has become very strange around her. The transitions that keep happening. She keeps flitting from one thing to another. Things around her just keep changing. She suddenly finds herself in a different context. And the play on words is mimicking that. It's echoing that. Or perhaps we can say it the other way around, that the change of scenery and situation around Alice is reflecting the uncertainty of the language and the terminology that they're using. This seems to me to be primarily what the fifth 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 square is about. Remember the Red Queen said the fifth square is mostly water. That's where she is with all the rowing and stuff. Um, We'll stop here because it's the end of the chapter anyway. But she finds herself back in the shop at the end and says to the sheep, I should like to buy an egg, please. She said timidly. She's timid because she has no idea what's going on or what's going to happen next. How do you sell them? Man, just think of what the Mad Hatter and the March Hare would have done with that question. How do you sell them, right? Man, she really teed it up there for them. Um, but that's not how the sheep responds. Um, Fivepence farthing for one, tuppence for two, the sheep replied. Then two are cheaper than one, Alice said in a surprised tone, taking out her purse. Only you must eat them both if you buy two, said the sheep. Then I'll have one, please, said Alice, as she put the money down on the counter, for she thought to herself, they mightn't be at all nice, you know. The sheep took the money and put it away in a box. Then she said, I never put things into people's hands. That would never do. You must get it for yourself. And so saying, she went off to the other end of the shop and set the egg upright on a shelf. And then, of course, after this, Alice approaches... The egg and the furniture turns in—the egg gets further and further away, and, and, the, and the, the furniture turns into trees, and the egg gets bigger. And then we get to the next chapter. Um, she, she crosses another brook and is done with the fifth square. And you will remember what we are told about the sixth square. The Red Queen told us what would happen, whom she would meet in the sixth square. The sixth square is the home of Humpty Dumpty, who, of course, is the egg that Alice just bought. I should like to buy an egg, please. Now, she didn't, um, uh, she wasn't thinking of Humpty Dumpty, right? She wasn't making a joke about Humpty Dumpty. I... Seems like she wants to buy an egg, first of all, because she can't think of anything else to buy. And she can't catch anything else in the store anyway. Um, I think she's possibly hungry. She's actually thinking about eating the egg, right? Um, And so she purchases an egg for her to eat. And the sheep won't give it to her. You must go get it for yourself. And then when she goes to the egg, she finds instead that she has... Uh, that she has met Humpty Dumpty, that Humpty Dumpty is the egg that she has purchased, in fact. And J.J., this absolutely does confirm that Alice is a serpent. Remember from Alice in Wonderland um, when she was called a serpent, when she had a really long neck um, and the birds asked if she ever ate eggs and she admitted that she really did um, and that therefore proved that she was a serpent. So, yes, there you go. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, So the strange transitions from one thing to the next. Um, The fifth square is, I think, the strangest square. By the way, uh, can't you begin to see why Tolkien loved Through the Looking Glass so much this book from one end to the next? Is fascinated by language and how language works, right? From Jabberwocky, um, through all of the other, you know, the, the the punning and all these other experiments with language. Um, if words words are supposed to be attached to things, but of course, the Fifth Square shows us the dubious connection between words and things. How a word which is normally attached to a thing may turn out to be told, to be attached to something quite different. But only for people who... Like, only for a strange subset of people. You know, like rowers and knitters. Right? To them these Particular words mean other strange things that those same words, which are normal words in everyday English, don't mean for anybody else. Um, And the world around Alice imitates that as it transforms, like, again, with the sheep and the wool, remember, the knitting and the sheep and the wool and being wrapped in wool and, um, again, all of these things. I don't think it's the language that's following the landscape. I think it's the landscape that's following the language, and I kind of think that that's. Um, I kind of think that that's what. Uh, I, I I kind of think that that's what. One of the things that Tolkien might have really loved about this book, but I can tell you one thing. Tolkien's favorite chapter <laughs> is coming up next, next week. Um, We will read the Humpty Dumpty chapter. And the Humpty Dumpty chapter is the chapter, I believe, that both Lewis and Tolkien refer to more often than any other. The walrus and the carpenter, huge favorite. They love that poem. Uh, But uh, both Lewis and Tolkien allude to Humpty Dumpty. Lewis Carroll's Humpty Dumpty from the next chapter is one of... uh, the most brilliant and enduring creations of this book. So I look forward to discussing Humpty Dumpty with you guys next week. Um, and yes, I will be here next week, next week, next Wednesday night is the night before Thanksgiving. Um, so I, but I do plan to do class next week and then, um, we'll be back, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll do class next week and and keep going. I think I'm not traveling for Thanksgiving this year, so so I'll be around. Um, anyway, thanks everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now, and don't forget on Saturday, uh, starting at one p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Signum's Webathon, the State of the University address. will be telling you about lots of the things that are coming up for Signum. So join us there, and don't forget if you haven't had a chance yet uh, to make your tax-deductible donation to Signum University. Thanks very much. Go to SignumUniversity.org/support for more information on that. Thanks everybody. Oh, should we do another drawing? We could do another drawing. I think. Why not? Well, no, I think a bunch of people have gone already. I don't want to necessarily, because I already said goodbye. So I think a lot of people left. I don't want to. I don't want to go. Well, I will do another drawing tomorrow night at Silm Film, and we'll do a bunch more drawings at the Webathon. All right, all right, everybody. Thanks. Now, good night.